Hello everyone, this is Ankita Bharadwaj, your host for Subtle Desi Traits and you are listening to WORT Madison 89.9 FM. My guest for today is Kenji Summers. Kenji Summers is a contemplative artist, certified mindfulness instructor, and attention activist based in Brooklyn. He learned meditation from the same teacher who mentored Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, discovering how the practice shaped the Mamba mentality. He is a young alumni award recipient from University of Massachusetts Amherst, as well as a life member of Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity. Kenji found higher education provided a path forwards towards achievement. As an Emmy Award winner, Arthur Vining Davis Fellow for the Aspen Institute, Ad Color Award winner, Clio winner, One Show Pencil winner, and Webby Award winner, he leveraged every opportunity to bridge to the next. And today, we will be talking to him about hip-hop and mindfulness. Hello, Kenji Summers. How are you today? I'm well. So nice to hear that. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where were you born and raised and what led you to the path of meditation? Yeah, peace. So born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, in the neighborhood of Bedford-Stuyvesant. And I grew up a few blocks away from one of my favorite rappers, Biggie Small. In my home, maybe around the age of 10, I, I heard some music and I came to find that my aunt was playing uh, Biggie's latest album before it was released. And after I heard it, I uh, I had to have it. And I remember sneaking into her room and, and getting uh, her apartment and getting the CD. And I played it, played the CD Life After Death, um, like every single day until she found out I took the CD. And it was like in that space of finding out, you know, she had the music early because she was the founding editor and writer for Word Up magazine. So she would review a lot of music. And uh, that Biggie project was one of them. And uh, Biggie even shouted the magazine out on, on his famous songs, Juicy. So, you know, hip hop and everything I learned from it was kind of like my first wisdom tradition. And I didn't take it to be that until recently when I started to work on my artistic practice and recognize that a lot of the wisdom that I have came from those lyrics uh, from when I was a child. In this modern age, what does spirituality mean to you? And also in one of our conversations before this interview, you kind of hinted that there's a difference between spirituality and mindfulness. Can you also elaborate a bit on that? Right on. Yeah, I think in the modern age, uh, spirituality... It means a combination of things for me. It means what can provide you with meaning. Like, why are you, why are we all in the world? Purpose, why am I or you specifically in the world? And what are we to do as individuals? Uh, community, I think, how do we come together to be a part of this world? And then rituals, how do we pass time? How do we deepen our meaning? And so for spirituality, like it's those combinations of uh, elements, meaning, purpose, community, and ritual that helps me best understand, uh, you know, the term. And, uh, you know, I 
wanted to mention that like I think the difference between spirituality and mindfulness uh, could be that mindfulness is a return to yourself. So it's a very personal experience. And that that return to yourself is one in which you make note of the present moment. And to make note of that present moment, you can recognize that you have a body and that you are embodied. And it's one of the most um, simple but complex acts I found within spirituality. Uh, practice for mindfulness and specifically meditation going into yourself after you've returned to yourself can be one of the more intimate acts that any of us can and I know that for for myself can experience so reading a bit reading a bit about you on Google because I did kind of research you a bit I came across um, certain information which which basically uh, geared towards you and your passion of trying to um, heal people of color of their you know, generational trauma and the trauma of being a person of color in this world that we live in. How do you see your work affecting that part of our existence, of our, our collective existence? <laughs> well, I, I think I'm just doing my part. Uh, I'm in a long line of people, particularly black men, that have uh, attempted to leave the world better than they found it. Now, my father was a professor of race, class, and gender studies, and was also a counselor and therapist for college-age students and, and youth. And uh, I think his idea is similar to mine. Um, my approach was more of working in, and to an extent, my father facilitated people working in through the therapeutic experience. And I think the healing of like, generational trauma is such a massive thing to even consider for all people, let alone for people of color. Um, but I do recognize the black experience is, is one that is um, uniquely qualified due to the circumstances in which many black people arrived in America. We're the only non-immigrant group of people. And we were subjected to chattel slavery. So the idea that you are a possession that um, can be moved and that not only you, but your children. Um, so everyone in your lineage in perpetuity were to be um, considered chattel slaves. So the idea of coming back to yourself and recognizing that you are a, a body um, and that that body is free and that the mind can also be is, is something that I'm, I'm starting to realize is a, is a practice on its own. And uh, I find that it's helping me better understand how to work with other bodies, um, black bodies, bodies of color, uh, and bodies of culture. I'm going to have to sit with that because I think you made a great point. Thank you for saying that. Um, are there any cultures that you admire a lot and get inspiration from? Can you tell us a bit about them? Or, yeah, you know, I, I like to go directionally. Um, I mean, I, I was born in the West. I was born here in in, in, in New York um, within America. But I recognize that the, the East is responsible for many of the practices that Europeans or Americans in the West have uh, adopted and pretty much made, tried to make their own. And so many of my primary mindfulness and meditation teachers 
uh, went east or were taught by people who went east. And so Thich Nhat Hanh is a, a teacher within um, a world where my teachers learn from him. And also there's Soto Zen teachers. Uh, so in Japan uh, that have um, informed the teachings that I've learned from my teachers. But I, I like to also mention that while looking east, I did go south. And so my primary practice has been hip hop and the origins of hip hop are in the Caribbean and the origins of the Caribbean culture that it pulls from um, is in Africa. So part of my my work is reclaiming the contemplative practices of African people. And for me, that's an ongoing experience, but I find a lot of influence from those of ancient Egypt or what, you know, the ancestors there called uh, Kemet. Makes sense. Thank you for saying that and um, talking about a bit about hip-hop. I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a bit about the origins of hip-hop as you were talking about it and how it really relates to spirituality and meditation. Word. Yeah, yeah. We we just passed the 50-year mark for hip-hop. And uh, as one of my my friends says uh, from the group Dad Press, uh, my man Stick, he said it's still bigger than hip-hop. And what I love about that is it acknowledges the importance of hip-hop, but also not couching it in what the music industry does to hip-hop. So I think the importance of hip-hop is that there's five elements. You have expression through through voice, through MCing, through DJing, through manipulation and sampling of sounds. Um, you have graffiti or art, street art particularly. You have uh, dance or break dancing or b-boying, b-girling. And then you have, for me, what's very, very important is knowledge. You know, the knowledge, the knowledge of self, the knowledge of the people you're around, the world that you are living within. And so I think hip-hop is just one of those, I think it's a wisdom tradition, but also culture and ethos that it doesn't really get as much attention when it comes to these practices of spirituality or even of meditation and mindfulness, but I think it has a lot to offer us, uh, particularly for people that are informed uh, and grew up as as hip-hop heads. Whenever people say hip-hop, um, one of the first few names that pop up into, well, I'm guessing most of people's minds is like Nicki Minaj or um, Young Money. <laughs> um, for people who are not that literate like me, in the history of hip-hop or in the current uh, understanding of hip-hop that is not constricted by just a few artists. Can you tell our listeners where else we should look to truly understand the essence of such a powerful music? Yeah, man, word up. Um, listen, uh, I think Biggie Smalls is an artist. I mean, I'll name my artists first. Biggie Smalls, Nas, Kendrick Lamar, Yassine Bey, formerly known as Most Def. Uh, I mean, there's so many MCs, but I think the producers also don't get a far enough credit. One of my favorite producers of today that I think is worth checking out is Don McLennan. Uh, he's formerly of the hip-hop boy band Brock Hampton, and he'll be on campus with me during my residency, and he's been producing the score, so I'll be using hip-hop uh, music to 
provide soundscapes for meditation. So I, I think I'd start there, you know, but yeah, there's there's so much wealth in in the names I already shared. And I think if you follow their family tree, you'll be pleasantly surprised. Yep. Um, I think that would be a great first place to start for people like me who are still discovering hip hop uh, as immigrants, especially. Thank you for that. Um, do you think you'd be able to tell us if there have been any other sort of music that have probably inspired you or has it primarily been hip hop? Facts, facts. Well, if you say hip hop, you're talking about uh, the part of the culture, the music that has utilized sampling. So it sampled funk music, jazz music, soul music, R&B, rhythm and blues, um, reggae, and, you know, house. So I, I find myself really informed by particularly soul music. So a group like Earth, Wind & Fire, um, they've had a ton of hits throughout the years. They're still touring. Um, but even on the jazz side, like the Coltrane's, Alice and John Coltrane, and you know, I, I think for there, uh, those are the genres I'm really vibing with and then I've always vibed with. But I think recently it's been getting into like what psychedelic soul, like of artists like Nick Hakim, who in my opinion is inspired and influenced by hip hop, but interprets it in a maybe a different way than people are used to. Yeah. Um, recently, I've been discovering that New Orleans um, has been a great source of great jazz music and uh, Loki, I'm actually trying to save money to go to New Orleans as soon as possible because jazz does, it's it's kind of a peaceful music. I can't really explain it in words, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's one of the things with jazz early on. It's like you have a a poet like uh, Amiri Baraka who would just say like the the white critics of the of his era and earlier would try to like put all these words to a music that is you know, jazz music, which is pretty hard to put into words. <laughs> so sometimes, and oftentimes, there's like a loss of 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 aesthetic in trying to describe it in words, particularly from the outside looking in. Yeah. Uh, as somebody not from this culture in the United States or West, whenever I listen to jazz, um, you know, interestingly enough, it takes me back to Northern Indian music, which is... Some of it can be fast, you know. I mean, we have different kinds of music all over the world, right? Um, mm -hmm. But there's a specific kind that can especially be uh, like, you know, on sitar or tanpura, which can kind of be in the same, you know, tune with jazz. It just kind of feels very not similar, but yet similar. It's weird. to <laughs> I can't use words for that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, res I respect it. Do you, did you grow up utilizing the music? In, in spiritual practice or observance? Oh, yes. Uh, living, uh, Growing up in India and uh, until recently, uh, um, around eight years ago, we did grow up using music in India, especially as a way to celebrate life, as a way to celebrate people and events, mm. uh, as a way to cry, as a way to heal, as a way to wake up every day, as a way to go to bed every day. India is very much... Music, like music is the heart of India and has been for centuries, mm. actually even millennia, because we have, for example, in Hinduism, um, in our texts, whenever we chant mantras, the correct way to chant them is always in a melody, in a tune, right? Word. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, music does have a lot of um, history in, in India. Yeah, no, that's fire. I've been spending some time reading the Bhagavad Gita mm. and learning. I love the story, first off. Like, um, homeboy gets to ride passenger side, you know, with, <laughs> with uh, you know what I mean? With Krishna, yes. that's pretty cool, in my opinion. And, you know, the idea of going to war every day, like, we're all going to war with our lower selves, you know, and trying to purify or cut off those parts of us that we don't need um, any longer. And yeah, the idea that you got, you can sing it, it can be a melody. Like I, I just think that's something that, you know, I don't know if it's, it's gone. I think we've just misplaced um, it for ourselves. I think there's so much music out there that can be used for spiritual purposes, especially here in the West, but it's become so commodified in pursuit of um, maximizing uh, profit. Yeah, so true. Can you tell us a bit about what kickstarted your journey to where you are today in your personal journey towards peace and hip-hop and meditation and mindfulness? Well, yeah, I think, you know, my journey really started from getting fired from my dream job. And at that dream job, I got to work on Kobe Bryant's last couple of seasons in the NBA. And I was obsessed with figuring out ideas to celebrate him as he was leaving the league. And I was dealing with, like, pretty exhaustive depression and and high levels of anxiety. And it was learning that his Mamba mentality was inspired by his teacher, George Mumford, a mindful athlete five superpowers framework. And um, I was fortunate enough, even after I got let go, to find Kobe's teacher, who's also Michael Jordan's teacher, and convince him to be my teacher. And so now I've kind of been, you know, bringing those practices together by meditating every day and then going and becoming a meditation teacher myself. So my journey towards peace now looks like what I call free peace, which is a 360 degree um, peaceful existence where you start from like like a clock right Um, at 12 o'clock or at one o'clock I should say peace is free at two o'clock peace is priceless at three uh, peace is humane at four peace is divine at five peace is sought at six peace is found seven peace is theirs eight peace is yours nine peace is below ten peace is above 11 pieces outside and 12 pieces inside. So I feel like we all go through the experience in life. It's kind of like a circle that brings us back to ourselves. So as I said before, I did kind of, you know, Google you. But your website boasts of really high-profile clients like Meta, X, which, which was formerly Twitter, Nike, Snapchat, Instagram, and so many more. Do you think professionals in such an industry have some you know, kind of problems in their everyday life that might be different from a normal person's life? And what do you think is the difference? What what is the thing that makes their life different than somebody who's not in a very fast-paced environment like theirs? Yeah. You know, listen, you know, those clients are are really cool, and I've enjoyed working with them each individually. But I, I think we're all dealing with burnout to an extent. And I think burnout is exhaustive depression. And so I don't know if it's always going to be a biochemical 
you know, explanation, but I think socially we're just too sped up. We're just too sped up and there's really a lack of slow work. And I think those companies, they are in this race to grow by any and every means necessary. And so that looks like maximizing profit for their shareholders or the value for their shareholders, which usually comes at a cost to their employees, particularly middle and lower management, but also top leaders, executives are, are burning out faster than they ever have. And so I think we're, we're reaching a point, and when you look at the world, you see the, the strife and the geopolitics. Like I think we're just realizing that we've been burnt out. It, hasn't, it wasn't just because of you know, COVID-19, but I think that exacerbated things. And I think we're, we're entering a place where all of those clients I've had and the clients I will have in the future are going to have to make a decision on like, is growing and potentially dying early worth the sacrifice? Talking about such fast-paced environments, I remember when I was an attorney back home in India, um, I worked a lot. Like when I say a lot, I mean, I don't even remember having a good night's sleep, right, during those years. Um, Maximizing profit, as you said. It is interesting how your work is in stark contrast as a I mean honestly to me at least it seems like a rebellion against capitalism and that really inspires me would you agree listen I'm I'm in this process of learning about the the idea of late stage capitalism are you familiar with that version of it or that term Uh, I do 1950s yeah well my dad was born 44 mm -hmm. and he did when I think we were transitioning in this form of capitalism and just seeing how it's created these wealth gaps, particularly for black people in America, like the numbers are, are horrid. And it's really challenging to think that this system that benefited from the, the bondage of the people, uh, my ancestors particularly could create actual fair, um, how do I put this horizons for people? I, I don't know if we can actually achieve this form of shared wealth through the idea of capitalism. I think there's 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 more more is owned in the one percent than the the rest of the ninety nine percent combined. Like that's the stat that really always stands out to me. Yeah, I think about it every day. It's there are actual billionaires, and there's like. <laughs> So many zeros, I have lost count, honestly, and, um, especially in dollars. Like, I come from a world where we have rupees. <laughs> it's even right. worse right. in that scale. Um, I think I am in resistance right now, and I'm recognizing it's okay in your resistance to critique the system that you're, content- you're consistently participating in. Like, I'm participating in that late-stage capitalism that's turning into a techno-feudalism where there's even fewer lords or kings that are ruling over all of us. And I think it would actually be a shame for any of us, you know, to to just turn a blind eye or when you've been given a glimpse not to investigate deeper and further. Are there any things you would like our listeners to know today that we can learn from your experience in this because I feel like all of us are living in a very fast-paced, very stressful environment that you, you had just mentioned a few minutes ago. 
what is it what is the thing that we should take away from your interview and we should practice in our daily lives to deal with that kind of stress right i love that for us um listen i think i start with mindfulness because it's a return to yourself and that is something you can do every day all day and i'm in the process of like working on the fundamentals of that so just starting with the breath and becoming aware that you're breathing where the breath is coming from and the quality of that breath. I think that's one of the first things people can start with. Now, if that's too much, I understand and meditation may not be for you yet, but I can say there's three things that keep anyone from wanting to meditate, right? To take it further. One, they think I can't meditate because it's unpleasant. It doesn't feel good or it hurts too much. Two, something is wrong with me or I'm bad, like a shame, right? And three, I won't heal or awaken because I'm too damaged. Again, more shame, but also now turning into like a form of suffering. I think we all are going through that. Like we're all going through it. And so what I love and what I would start with is becoming aware of that breath. And then over time, if you feel like you're you're ready, find somewhere to go to learn. It might be in a group or it might be with a teacher. Or might be a group with a teacher. In the beginning, like many years ago, when I first came to the U.S., meditation was just not for me, even though when I come from a culture of meditation, right? A right. religion of meditation. But when I say it wasn't for me, I mean, I just was not able to meditate because there were so many thoughts in my mind all the time. It was like a busy street 24-7 in my brain, right? It wouldn't calm right. down. And so for me to sit down with myself and expect to like be able to concentrate on one single single like singularity or just be thoughtless for that moment was impossible until recently and this is kind of going to sound funny but until recently when i started taking my vitamin d in wisconsin it's important <laughs> mm-hmm. it helps you with seasonal depression so everybody listening out there take your vitamin d um yeah. but Right now you're in Madison and uh, you are currently doing your residency here at UW-Madison. Um, wow. You are artist in residence, to be more precise. Um, can you please elaborate on what that ensues? Well, yeah, I'm excited about the residency. So this residency is inspired by my father. He's one of the first people I started to listen to hip-hop with, you know, once I learned about it and in my home from my aunt, you know, I started to... Um, you know, really like listen with him and, and critique the songs and the, the subject matter. And, you know, my dad passed away in 2022 and, you know, I coped with his passing by overworking. Like, all those clients that you mentioned earlier, all these like top companies, I started to mm-hmm. just do as much as I could for them. The, the day after my father passed away, I was at one of those companies' offices. I got on a plane and flew out there to to, to guided meditation. And so I recognized that my father did the same thing when his father passed. I learned that from my mother. And I realized like it's this complex relationship between father and son, but also a complex relationship um, with work. And I, I um, hope to, in this, this residency, deal with work, family, and meditation, particularly in modern Black life. Uh, using the wisdom tradition of hip-hop. Also, often, like, hip-hop is not integrated into our healing, but I think it can be and it should be. And so, yeah, I hope to really bring my father 
throughout my residency, like I, I kind of feel like it's a collaboration between he and I, and I hope to just be able to be a vessel for that um, on the ground. Yeah, thank you, Kenji, for talking with us today and um, really honestly also contributing to, for our listeners later in the show, for that, for we can meditate, for our meditation. Um, I really appreciate um, your time with us today, and I learned a lot today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So as promised, uh, I'm going to introduce a four-minute meditative slash mindfulness session that is led by Kenji from 2021. And it's a four-minute long session that I hope will center you, will bring you peace, and will actually really just help you slow down. So, enjoy. It's 9.45 a.m. on August 17th, 2021. And I'm sitting outside 226 St. James Place, the childhood home of Christopher Biggie Smalls Wallace. Big one said, spread love is the Brooklyn way. But let's first lay down what love means. Love means giving, expecting nothing in return. Sharing without expectation. To spread love means to donate selflessly. Take a moment to picture what is inside you right now that you can afford to donate to the world. See yourself close, in color, taking up the full screen of your mind. Tune into the sounds that are being emitted. Feel the heat that is your gift. This is what you will give. Now imagine the largest stadium you have seen or been in. Only thing is, this stadium floats a thousand feet in the sky where there are no limits. Now picture that. And the stadium is your family, your friends, your classmates, your colleagues, your role models, and way up in the nosebleeds are your ops. Starting from the VIP backstage with two hands, you offer your gift to your family that has been with you from the jump. Next, as you come out of the stadium tunnel, you see a packed stadium with all the people in your life. The stadium is sold out, all standing for you ready for what you have to give. Everyone is welcoming you to the best of their ability. You take a look in your hands and see the glowing gift you have just given to your fam backstage. You say to the audience, what I have to give right now can only be kept by giving it away. So as soon as it touches your hands, Take it into your heart and then pass it to the person behind you. As the audience agrees, you start to share your gift with the friends in the front row. As friends take in your presence, they pass to the next row. As you stand to see the stadium light up with the glow of your gift, 
the sounds of harmony start to play from the speakers. In this floating stadium is the greatest concert of all time. And your love is the music. does it for the show. You've been listening to Subtle Desi Traits, a monthly show right here on WORT Madison. I'm your host Ankita Bharadwaj. Coming up in a few minutes is Strictly Jazz Sounds, but first, the Insurgent Radio Kiosk.